So welcome back again, listeners, to Come and See Inspirations. As I said, my name is John Keeley. Today I'm delighted to welcome Father John Roach onto our Come and See Inspirations programme to chat with us about his life as a priest. Father John spent many years working in a number of countries in Africa. A lot to tell us. So, Father John, thanks again for taking time out to share your story with us. Uh, John, good morning, and to all your listeners. And uh, it's a joy for me to be able to share uh, with you and with them uh, something of my story. Um, maybe just a little bit first. I come from a throne. Um, I was born and reared here, and I often tell people I'm a real a throne man because my mother, my mother was from Kusum, which is on the Leinster side. My father was from Clanown which is on uh, the Connacht side. And anybody who knows at Lone uh, knows the importance of the River Shannon passing through our town. Uh, but Athlone uh, is my home. I've always felt a deep affinity to Athlone. And even though I've spent 45, 46 years in other countries, uh, coming home has always been about predominantly Athlone. Uh, its people and uh, my friends there. Uh, we were six children in our family, um, uh, five boys and one girl. And uh, I was uh, the only boy that uh, went forward for the priesthood. I had two brothers who were uh, in the army, uh, another in the railway, another fitter turner and uh, my good sister. Uh, two of us, my sister and my brother Jim, have uh, passed into the fullness of God. And um, we are, I would say, a very sort of united family. I was educated in Atlone by the Bauer sisters as uh, an infant. We used to call them then Madame. It was Madame Tekla and Madame Austin. Uh, but there were, there were really, my memories of them would be very positive. They were very loving, very caring, and um, a great joy for us as, uh, you know, as young children. Uh, then I went to the Marist College for my uh, primary education and my secondary education. And uh, again, I would have to say predominantly these were lovely experiences. Uh, I suppose my memory goes back especially to Brother Patrick and Brother Brian. Brother Patrick was a man, I think, an educationalist before his time. Uh, he used to invite us to be imaginative and to dream dreams and to write poetry and to write song. Um, and that was sort of something at that time. And Brother Brian was the same. Um, then I went on into secondary school. I suppose when I was in the primary school, I did think a lot about vocation to the priesthood. Uh, I was in the choir and I was a mass server. But I'd have to say that when I went to secondary school, um, football became very much part of my life. And uh, I really enjoy that. Uh, um, and of course, relationships with some of the young ladies around the throne. Uh, but my, my final year in um, uh, Maris College, uh, a priest, Father Liam McSorley, came in from the society now that I am part of, St. Patrick's Missionary Society, Kiltegan, and he spoke about missionary priesthood. And I suppose there was two things that came across to me. His passion about it, he was, it, it seemed to be, this was real for this man, and he was very passionate in what he shared about it. And I suppose the second one was the need. He spoke about the need of your know, priests and uh, uh, preachers and uh, disciples 
in Africa, uh, places like Nigeria and places like uh, Kenya at that time. So afterwards, actually, I went to see him and I said, I thought this was dead, but something you said has just is, has stayed with me. So that started uh, the journey to, uh, to... Just going back a small little bit further, John, um, maybe just a little bit about maybe the faith in your family, you know, and maybe the, the faith in the general community as it was then when you were growing up. Uh, I would say like that the, the faith in the family was uh, it was very much communitarian but uh, it was a, a a faith that was i suppose of prayer and of celebration um my the rosary would have been very much of our of our daily life and actual fact sometimes we complained about it we want to get out to to play football but my father would say well let let us first kneel and uh, pray together to the the rosary so that comes you know that 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 did strike you here's my father kneeling my mother kneeling and uh, together as a family we said the rosary uh, and then even our preparation for Sunday Mass or maybe the Holy Days of Obligation uh, by they were prepared for uh, my mother would have been very very uh, strong on being punctual I mean there for the beginning of mass so uh, that I would say we were a household of prayer I mean we were a household of faith uh, you know that whole area Arcadia Clumbrusk where I was going we it was a sort of a community of faith but it was a community of faith not just of prayer but also of hospitality of care for one another and of looking out for each other. I think we would always have felt, you know, that uh, we could visit each other's houses. Uh, there was always that hospitality there, but there was also that sense that we stood up for one another. So faith was not just prayer, but it was also act, it was also solidarity and it was also uh, protection. So it was a sort of a faith that I felt was lived and that was vibrant and that I was very much and very happy uh, to be part of. So it was very formative, uh, you know, in my journey of faith. And I think in my journey of, of uh, you know, of just of growth as a human person with good values and with good principles. Beautiful memory to have and a beautiful gift to have. Father John, um, I believe you have your, your interest in football uh, played out pretty well in the early 70s. I believe you played uh, in the Atlone GA team in 1971. Uh, I did, John. Uh, I think my love really for, for sports in general was uh, nourished with the Barris College because um, we got to an under-16 final in, in Leinster. Unfortunately, we were beaten, but uh, I, 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 really, I was quite good at football, so I, I, uh, I got very interested in it. Then when I went to the seminary, in those days we had good numbers. So actually we had a very good seminary team. And I think it was during that time that uh, I was also noticed by, I, I played for the county for uh, for three years. But in uh, 1971, we won the county championship in Malangar. And uh, that, I must say, for me was a, a, a particular joy. And um, for me, it wasn't just the football itself, but uh, the friendships that, that, that uh I have still with many of the the, the, the players of that time. Uh, for me, f- football was, yes, the joy of engaging and the joy of trying to win and all the rest. But it was also friendship. And somehow uh, some of these uh, relationships have remained with me even up to now. Like when I'm back now in, in there's quite a number of uh, that that era that I would be uh, friends to the family and to the children. 
grandchildren. So yes, it was a, a particular. Uh, I suppose the sad part of that, John, is that uh, we were beaten in the Leinster final by Port Leash by one point. Um, to get to a Leinster final is always something which is very significant, and I'd have to say, John. Uh, I hated being beaten by a point. I, yeah. I never minded being beaten by three or four. I said, well, we were beaten by a yes. But uh, to be beaten by a point, I always say it's in the balance. You know, it's in the balance. But we got there and uh, it's a great memory to have as well. And Father John, so you mentioned early on there, um, when you come to around your leaving set um, and uh, you had a visit uh, to the school uh, from a religious uh, the idea, again, came into your mind about maybe following a vocation to priesthood. But if it wasn't for, voc- if it wasn't for a vocation to the priesthood, w- would you have had any other um, uh, place in life you'd have liked to follow? Any other little trade? or? Well, uh, certainly an area that I've always liked, actually, was the area, all area of communication. And um, actually, when we went to, actually, went to Kiltegan, we had an army officer called Con Sullivan, who uh, brought us through speech and communication for uh, for a number of years, but even as in secondary school, I I liked communication, so that would have been certainly one area that I was thinking of. Um, another area uh, would have been music in general. Um, I used to say I, I thought I had a reasonably good voice, and if I could have got a little good band uh, around. Uh, I would have certainly looked at, at that. I think they would be the predominant ones. Um, apart from that, there are other things that you'd looked at, but there would be something. And I often thought, like maybe acting, communication. Uh, these would certainly be areas that I would have been interested in. But it came to the time when um, you had to decide as to which way to go. So please continue on with that story in regard to being introduced to maybe following a vocation to priesthood. Yeah, well, as I say, like this, this Father Max Orley came and what really struck me about him was, as I said, and he spoke about the need. So we had a, at that time, he used to say, a come and see weekend. So I we went to Wicklow um, and over the Easter weekend, we were there. I suppose what struck me about was uh, that these students were, were very normal. They were very welcoming. And um, I just sort of felt uh, over that weekend, I went on Friday back home on Sunday, I said, yeah, I, I like this. I, I, I like the, the way these people live and I like the way they relate to one another. So in actual fact, I, I came back from that more or less saying, yes. Uh, and, you know, we had quite a bit of prayer during that weekend and they were sort of giving us tools about, I now I would say about discernment, you know, listening to the Lord and prayer and I felt it was a certainly very strong tug, um, heart tug for me at that time saying, I will not be happy unless I give this a try. I will, I will find joy in my life unless I give this a try. And about a month, month after um, returning, I, I signed up the form and said, uh, I'm ready to join in September. And that's, that's what I was, 65, September 65, I started what they call a spiritual year in Kiltegan. Uh, we were 32 at that time, which was numbers were up um, from all parts of the country. And uh, it was, uh, I must say, for me, a very special year because I, I just felt that um, 
I, I got to know the Lord in a different way. And during that, we did a 30 days retreat um, and we were in sort of introduced to meditation. And I think Jesus there became for me real, became a friend and became a companion. And uh, that year I would put as a very pivotal year of my own sort of vocational story. Um, and, uh, you know, I, as I say, yes, we family of faith, but uh, that experience of, of uh, Jesus being near me, Jesus being with me, maybe calling me to this way of life um, stuck with me. And uh, I was very happy with that year. And I, I, I continued on from there. Experience to have met Jesus in that way for that particular year, especially starting off in in a new journey in your life. Tell me, Father John, how did your family and friends react when you told them? Listen, think of going this. Um, I, I have I have to say, uh, I, my mother was a very wise woman. Um, I had two uncles who were in the Holy Ghost, and when I finished primary school. They had heard that I was interested in priesthood, which I was at that time, and wanted me to come to Black Rock. And, uh, of course, Black Rock was a, a a very significant, if not famous, college at that time. And I was absolutely convinced I was, you know, they said, no problem, we'll get you a place there. And I went home. And I told my mother, um, and she said, no, you're not going. She said, you will stay here in the house with us until you complete your secondary school. If you want to go then, you'll go with my blessing. So when I told her um, that I was, I, would, I had decided I wanted to go to Kiltegan, uh, both her and my father gave me their blessing. They, were, they, were, they felt it was a mature decision and that I had given it time, even though I was only 17 years old. So uh, maturity is, uh, I don't think it comes to 17 years either, but they honoured they honored my decision. Yeah. Um, I think fellas, some of the fellas in my school would have would have been sort of proud that I was sort of going to the pre. I was, I, I yes, I was the only one in our class in in Maris College who went. Others felt this was, yeah, this was ridiculous. And uh, some of my lady friends said, "Oh, this is a waste of your life." Uh, and uh, I, I said, "Well, you know, uh, that's my decision at the moment." And uh, We'll see how it evolves in the coming years. So it was that sort of combination. Some, but my family, I think, would have been very, very supportive of it. Certainly, my parents, because they felt I had, it had matured in me in different ways. Um, and people at home, yes, generally they were sort of they were they were happy with it. Uh, some questioned it as you know at, at that time uh, whether that was a life that would allow me to blossom and to mature well in my life. Um, but I think the majority would have been happy and supportive. And certainly in my journey in the seminary, I found people at home and in Athlone uh, very supportive and uh, very affirming. During that time, Father John, were you allowed to keep in contact with home during that first year away? No, John. We had uh, for the first three months uh, we had we had no contact at all with home. Um, but uh, coming into the new year, it was that sort. Things were starting to change in seminary life. Uh, they're becoming more open. Up to that, they were very, it was very close. You were sort of, you were taken out of the world and you were placed in this 
uh, sort of rarefied atmosphere, if you wanted to put it, for a year. But um, the eldest of us, Tony, was married in um, February 66. And um, I got out for, I was allowed out for that, which was sort of a break in tradition. But um, so I was, I was sort of a part of a new thinking about uh, seminary training. And when it was becoming more open, and I would have found that later on, like in in uh, philosophy and in theology, um, there was a lot of movement in and out. Uh, but for that first year, uh, that was the one uh, the the one occasion we 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 got out, and I was delighted to be with my no the elder. He was the first of us to get married, so it was a lovely family occasion, and John was there, and I was very happy to be there. And Father John, what was daily life? What was it a typical day like in that first year? Um, we, we we rose quite early, uh, like we were introduced. To things. I though I said sort I I came from a sort of a faith house. Things like meditation, uh, uh, we didn't know much about, so we were introduced to that fairly early. So the the early morning would have would have been um, uh, prayer. Uh, private prayer, community prayer, ending up with uh, with mass, um, and that would have started maybe around six o'clock. So it would have been six to seven thirty around that. We'd have that. We'd have breakfast. Then we had classes in the morning. Um, there could have been uh, scripture on on uh, introduction to to the Bible, introduction to the New Testament. Uh, some areas around morality. Uh, constitutions of our own the society that I was saying I want to be part of. Um, and uh, you know, there was t- topical sort of issues um, as well that were, dis- were that were discussed. So most of that morning would have been, um, let's say, in a, a fairly sort of relaxed class atmosphere. Uh, then in the afternoon, we'd, we'd have midday prayer and lunch. The afternoon we generally had was either manual work or sports. We were certainly manual work. Kiltegan has beautiful grounds. So we were expected, not only expected, but there was a certain, there was a pressure. I think those in charge saw manual work as being a formative, a formative sort of exercise. And not only in using, you know, your body and things like that, but in people coming together, working together, and it's thought that is important for, you know, for the future as well, because um, you know the priest is not a, an island. We work together as teams wherever we are, so they, they encouraged that. And of course, football then was uh, well, sports in general. Well, it was tennis. Some some men who didn't like the football played croquet, but uh, at least at least for two um, two evenings a week we would have maybe it was three or we'd have some sort of sporting activity. Uh, so uh, then in the evening we would have evening prayer meal and we generally had time for some sort of study in the evening whether that was what uh, come up during the day um, and we generally went to bed quite early because there was no telly at that stage that, that came in uh, later on and we had no radios actually we weren't supposed to have radios though I have to say John some of us had little radius hidden under the on the under the the, the pillow but uh, it was sort of still quite a bit of cut off from from the world. But I think those the men who were sort of guiding us were made sure too that uh, we were in touch with what was happening. 
And so this for after this first year, Father, was this the time when somebody made a decision? Yeah, okay, got some idea about what this is all about, and now I'm going to go further. Had the idea? Yes, for for all of us, actually, at the end of that first year, we had um, <clears throat> we met with with those who were guiding us and accompanying us, and. Uh, we were invited ourselves like to really look at what has this year been like for you? What would you think are the positives and the negatives in regard to you? And do you think that, you know, that you want to continue this? So it was ours first, you know, for, if you want to put personal sort of discernment, personal sort of looking at, do I really want this? And then they would give to the feedback to us. So I felt at the end of the year, um, it was a good year for me. I enjoyed it. Um, as I said, I felt that Jesus became somehow real for me and I wanted to continue. And uh, that was supported by the, the views of the two men who were uh, in charge of, predominantly in charge of accompanying us. They said, yes, I, we think you have what it takes uh, to be a priest and to be a missionary priest. So that sort of combination, my own listening to the spirit and the spirit coming from those who are accompanying me, convinced me that, yes, I wanted to continue. And some might think, well, at, at that young age, you know, it might be a little bit, um, I don't know, should I use the word immature, but thinking about, you know, this is a major decision. Am I, am I capable and mature enough to make this this decision? But, you know, I think at that stage, maybe... I, I was maybe just 18, going on 19. Mm. And yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, you could say in one sense it is, you know, but I was also aware that look, this is not going to be the final decision. Yeah, okay. Like there would be yeah. other decisions, like I'm going down now to, to study philosophy. Um, out of our 32, I think at that time, there was only two. So it was a sort of a community sort of solidarity in, in a, a decision, which was challenged very much when we got into philosophy, because a lot of uh, my brothers in that class, a lot started leaving in, in, in philosophy. Um, so while it, you could say it was an immature decision, well, it certainly a, it wasn't the fullness of the maturity. Uh, but I did know that it was still a journey ahead. It was still five, six years ahead of me. So I look at that again, and um, I was aware that people would have said, you know, philosophy brings up a, a lot of sort of inner thinking about life and things like that. So um, I think, yeah, you have to make a decision anyway, but I was happy enough to make it and say, well, uh, this is not the final, final decision. But what I did hear you say, um, Father, early on there, and I think you said it twice so far, that Jesus became real for me. And I think that must have been a great source of encouragement for you as well, because you wanted to keep on follow, following on. Yeah, I would say, John, like that for me, yeah, sorry. But, uh, like, though I was a person and brought up in a family of faith, um, ritual was important and the prayers were important. But I, I think we, we sort of missed something about the centrality of the person of Christ. And, and uh, you know, somehow in that first year, in prayer, as I said to you, we had a 30 days retreat, which was, uh, it's based in Sydney. And I mean, there were moments in that retreat when I, I would have to say, uh, I experienced the love of Christ, the presence of Christ. And uh, like somehow, as I say, he became flesh and blood. 
that uh, that it wasn't just a pineless. He was a a man who journeyed in life. Uh, he was he had a vision, he had a dream, and he lived it out. Uh, and he had courage. So I I felt at that time that Jesus was becoming that sort of. At least for me, I felt yes, I can relate to this man, and I can relate to his vision. Uh, I knew that I would have to be refined a lot during in my future life. But at that time, it wasn't just about ritual. It wasn't just about going to mass, but it was also about being in relationship. And relationship for me was important. So this time in seminary, how many years did you say, Father, after this, six, after this initial year did you spend in seminary? Well, altogether we did seven years. Seven years in total. Um, can you remember any particular moment during that time when you say, yep, yeah, this is it now, I definitely want to follow this way of life. I, I, I would say, John, firstly, there was two very, I think, very challenging things. Um, our first year of philosophy in Cork, um, we, did, we did very well with regard to you know, people staying, people leaving. But our second year, I think we lost, I think seven of our classmates, seven or eight, left the seminary. Hmm. And they sort of shared with us, you know, why they were leaving. So, like, I, I felt very challenged. I felt very challenged to look at my own choice. And this was really, uh, you know, what I wanted. Um, and I thought I came back again and again to that saying, yeah, at a deeper level, at, at the heart level, this is what I want anyway for now, and I'll see. And I think that, that was one of the sort of, I'd say, pivotal moments. Another one came in, in um, second theology, which meant I was more or less uh, about two years from ordination. And uh, at that time, I was playing football. Nearly every weekend, I was out. We had a very good college team. Uh, Westmead were doing quite well at that time, and the club was doing well. So nearly every Sunday, I was out. I was in Fermanagh, I was in Mullingar, I was in Carlo, wherever it was. And I, I just found half the time on Monday morning, I was either sleeping at prayer or I was sleeping at lectures. And I started saying, no, this isn't for me. So I went actually to see one of our priests uh, who was guiding us. And I said, uh, I'm whatever, I'm six years in the seminary, but I said, I really think maybe now this isn't for me. Uh, I think the Lord sort of said it's not. And he said something to me. He said, John, he said, I'm not sure that this is the right decision. But could I ask you to do one thing? He said, will you stop going out, stop playing so much football for a month? And if you come back and say to me then that you want to leave, I will honor it. But I, he says, I, I said, I think there are other factors. So I, I, I said, OK, I will. And I didn't find it easy, John, to stop playing football for mm -hmm. uh, for a month because if you're playing with the county and you're playing with your club, people know you. And there's a certain amount of, you know, pride and all of that. But I did I did that. I just sort of said, I won't. I'll sort of give this my attention now for, for the next month. And during that time, it became very clear to me again that, no, this is where I want. And this is where I want to be. And this is what I want to do with my life. So after the month, I went back. Yeah, you're right. And thank you for your wisdom in guiding me to that. And so two years after that, it came around the time for you to be ordained a priest. When was that, Father? I was I was ordained uh, 1972 on the 4th of June in Killymote, which is a little uh, parish church uh, near uh, Kiltegan. Uh, at that time, we were just 
we, we could only invite, let's say, 50 members of the family. Um, but I, my sort of my abiding memory of it would be I, I just felt overawed by, by the whole experience. Um, it was beautiful to have the family around, but um, there was something about that movement for me, movement from being, I was a deacon at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, I suppose blessing my mother, blessing my family, uh, blessing my friends was for me a profound moment. And um, that, that has always stayed with me, you know, uh, uh, to be able to be somehow a channel of blessing, a channel of fullness and a chan- channel of joy for others. And like to me, it was this is what Jesus was about in his life. So uh, there was a sort of sense of being humbled by and by the ministry and humbled by the calling to be uh, a source of blessing and of joy and, and of healing for others. So um, we went home that evening and then the following day I had my first mass in a throne. And I, I do remember some things that's funny. Uh, I remember in my homily sort of saying, you know, that uh, I, I am... I am and um, the fruit of your presence and of your love and of your accompaniment. I was very conscious. Somehow I was an expression of of, uh, of their faith mm. and of their commitment to God, and to the church and to the mission. And um, it, it was just, it was a, uh, it was a beautiful occasion. And uh, it's funny to think about your family and friends, but uh, uh, when some of the footballers came up after, you know, looking for my blessing, and some of them were very hard, they were really tough footballers, you know, and, and they're kneeling down in front of me and sort of then bowing their heads, and, uh, that touched me very deeply. And I suppose in one way it has never never left me. A sort of a, um, that I, I think it's a sort of a, that humility and somehow humility in a good sense that I. But he's a he's a football with and we hit each other on the football field, mm-hmm. and yet here we were, uh, you know, being blessing to one another, and uh, so it was a an abundantly joyful occasion. And I I must say I was I was just touched there by that by that expression you use you were being used as a channel, and so there, therefore those those football friends of yours who were coming up for a blessing you would have been a channel of the uh, of a blessing from God to them beautifully. Beautiful way to expect it. Yeah, I, I, I would have been very conscious of that. And I, you know, I think throughout my missionary life, uh, that's a sort of an image that has has remained with me. We are to be channels of, as as priests and as Christians, to be channels of love and channels of blessing and, you know, channels of hope for others. And I, I, I think I have tried to live my missionary life and my my priestly life as well. Beautiful. So now you're ordained, you're ordained a priest, time to get some work done. What was your first assignment? Mm-hmm. What was your, your, your first assignment, Father John, and where were you? Uh, I'd have to tell you, John, it was after Vatican II, so they were talking about, you know, that there'd be dialogue with regard to our appointments. Um, so I went down to uh, uh, the, the dead, and he asked me, where would you like to go to? And I said, I'd love to go to Brazil. Because at that time, Brazil was, uh, I was very much into uh, human rights, the whole area of justice had been an integral part of ministry. It seemed to me to be a very, very vibrant place. Uh, so I said, uh, I'd love to go to Brazil. And he said, hmm, what about Malawi? 
and uh, we had we had only been about two years in Malawi, uh, which is in Central Africa, and we didn't know that much about it to be honest. So I said, well, I want to just hold on to this for my yeah, yeah, okay. But I said I'd really would love to go to Brazil, and then he said we would like you to go to Malawi. So I said uh, I said at that stage I said oh I go to Malawi I'm happy to go to. Um, and, and as I say, I didn't know very much about Malawi. So um, I started reading a bit about Malawi. It was formerly in Nyasaland. Um, and I was hoping to get out there maybe in, this was you know, sorry, middle of June, uh, 72. I was hoping to get out there. But my permit for, for Malawi was delayed. And I eventually got there in October uh, 1972. And so, Father John, um, when you arrived in Malawi, was it, as the as the book had said, had you been reading about, or was it something different? Well, I'd have to say, John. Like, firstly, I was very keen to get out. I sort of felt I I spent all I'm nearly I'm twenty five. I spent all my life studying and with books and all. I said, really, I I want to get out. Mm. I just I want to get I want to get to get stuck in. Uh, so I was very happy to go to to, to Malawi. Uh, I went to Kenya on the way. At that time, there was no direct flight, so we spent a, four of my classmates were going to Kenya. So I spent a week or two with them, and I, I found Kenya just an utterly stunning. The beauty of Kenya and the jacaranda trees. I said, "Wow, if this is Africa, uh, I'm I'm in a very beautiful place." Uh, then after about a week there, I went down to Malawi. But the first thing that struck me was. The heat, I arrived about 10 o'clock at night, and I always put it down, I felt as if I was walking into a wall of heat. Um, so I spent the night, the first night in a place called Blantyre, which was the old capital. And then the following day, I went up in a small six-seater to Mzuzu, which is in the north of, of, of the country. And um, when I arrived at a small airport there, the, like, the dust was flying. And uh, I said, wow. This, this this place isn't uh, certainly isn't, isn't urban, uh, but I'm just delighted to be there. And I was met then by the vicar general of the diocese of Nzuzo, and who actually, in fact, was a missionary of Africa, a white father uh, from Cork, originally from Cork. And uh, he brought me over to the bishop's house, and I met the bishop there, who was a French Canadian, Jean Louis Jobidon, um, and he was so welcoming and he was getting me tea and uh, uh, making sure my room uh, there was something about the simplicity of the man that I've never I never lost you know and uh, uh, he was my bishop for nearly 20 years but uh, as a bishop he was just so simple so welcoming and um, just a lovely human being and uh, I sort of felt well you know, the bishop is here. And then the, in the days afterwards, I started just visiting around. And there were a group of MMMs from from Ireland who were running the hospital. So it was lovely to have that connection with them. You know, um, you could go for your tea and scones in the afternoon and you could talk a, talk a little bit about Irish and about Ireland. And it sort of gave you a bit of sort of sense. Well, you know, it's not totally different. I have friends here. I have people here. Um so that was that was very nice. But then the bishop called me and he gave me two books. He said, now you have to get the language. And uh, I said to him, oh, 
I really don't want books anymore. But uh, he said, uh, you know, we have to get the language and language is essential here. And he said, for the next four months, you'll be learning language and orientation to culture and to the life of Malawi. And um, John, to be honest, wisdom of that was something I will always treasure. Uh, Chitumbuka was the language of, of the north of Malawi. And having that time, there was a priest, uh, he was a Belgian priest who was guiding us, uh, gave us classes every day. What we did was basically about six weeks, we attended classes. Then we were sent out to a village for about a month. Uh, where we lived with the with the villagers and uh, you know we really had we were sort of in a way we were immersed in, and then we came back for about another month uh, into a sort of a let's say a semi-academic sort of situation but by the end of three months I had a good grasp of this language and I was um, you know, I, I was very pleased I really was very uh, I, I, I studied f French and um, in, in secondary school and I didn't think I was particularly gifted with languages, but uh, I got Chitambuka very well. And over the years, people would have said that I spoke it very well. So I would have that time of orientation. That is the focus. I had no pastoral commitments. This was your commitment to get the language, to get to know the culture mm -hmm. and to get to know the sort of the, the mind and the heart behind the language and what the language expresses. And the language of, of uh, the culture of Malawi was very different in some ways to the culture of Ireland. So I had to open myself to that and to really uh, try to come to know it and to respect it. Because I think as a missionary priest, we have to respect the culture and the language of the people that we are sent to. Uh, and so, Father, um, this took a bit of three or four months, say about four months. Yeah, it was certainly it was four months, you know, that uh, we had that. Uh, then the bishop, being a very wise man, he said, uh, "You take a little break." So he gave us a, a little, an old beetle. There was two of us actually. Um, Father Thomas since died, God rest him. Uh, so he gave us a beetle. He said, "Go around and see a bit of Malawi," because we hadn't seen anything of Malawi up to that. But that was, in actual fact, part of our orientation, because also. Um, the third largest lake in in Africa, and um, it's 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 just it's a beautiful setting. And uh, we spent a few days at the lake and swimming there in the, the lukewarm waters of Lake Malawi. And um, you know, Malawi has a lot of beauty. Um, from the south of Malawi, it's about 200 feet below sea level. The very far far point of Malawi in the north is about eight and a half thousand feet above sea. So you have all the variety of fauna and of, of scenery there. So we had two weeks um, and we, we, we enjoyed it very much. And then uh, I got my appointment, uh, which was to the biggest parish in the diocese, uh, Holy Cross Parish in Kamenya. And it was sort of said maybe we would have had around 30,000 Catholics and a lot who would have been, um, you know, catechumen to be received into the church. There was three of us, three of us who were, um, there were two Dutchmen, members of the Missionaries of Africa, uh, and myself. So I was also introduced very quickly to a sort of a, an international ministry. I wasn't, for my first seven years in Malawi, I didn't work with any Irish priest. I worked with continental priests predominantly, uh, well, sorry, kind of European priests predominantly of the society, the White Fathers. 
and I would always look on as being a very important time because uh, uh, it it helped me to sort of be open to to, to new models of church, new ways of being, and uh, to look at ministry in a broader sort of sense. Um, so I was very happy. It was a very challenging place. Uh, we covered about 80 miles. Uh, the three of us covered about 80 miles from the centre, from Encomania Parish itself. And every weekend we went out to these stations and um, we, we anointed the sick. We brought uh, communion to the sick. Uh, of course, we had mass with the people. We had the catechumens to prepare. Uh, but I tell you, you were definitely... Um, you were you were challenged. It was a very uh, a very full time, and of course, then you were involved as well with um, sort of what you might put it as development work, uh, building churches, getting uh, medical centres, at least some dispensaries, and we were we were generally involved in, in in a lot of that. And sometimes you could end up too. John has just been a, a taxi driver or driving people to the hospital. There was, there was no vehicles at all at that stage. Uh, the priest, I did my first few years in a motorbike, uh, which you know, in a way like uh, gave you great freedom. You could go through the bush roads and everything, and uh, uh, you didn't have to worry about you know people looking for lifts and things like that. After about three years, I got a, I got a pickup because we needed one. So at times you were you were an ambulance driver, at times you were a hearse driver, but it didn't matter. That was that was all part of the life of the people, and therefore was part of my life. And um, I was happy when when we could provide that service as well. So it was a very challenging time, even physically. Like I was very young, um, 26, 27 at that time. But I tell you, when you're covering that sort of distance and you had that. But I think what the outstanding thing for me, John, about all of that would be the lay involvement. Uh, you know, we would not. Have, we were only three priests and uh, we would have not have been able to. And we shouldn't have even done it. But certainly we would not have been able to uh, be present uh, and do all the things we would want to have done without the great involvement of the laity. It was one of the things that struck me very much from the very beginning when I went out. I was sort of saying, I was thinking, gosh, we have so many wonderful faith people in Ireland, and yet I don't see them very much involved in the church. So we had, like, we had catechists, we had lay leaders, we were people who were forming children for First Holy Communion, who were accompanying young men and women who were preparing for marriage. We had funeral ministries. The, the whole area there was, was covered. And in actual fact, my first diocese, the number one priority for the, first, the five years that I was there was lay leadership training. And the bishop and his council and that, they put great emphasis on that. And I'm talking about 1970. This was 1972, 1973. I, I wrote a letter to my mother, actually, at one stage, saying to her, you know, I thought I was coming from a first world church to a third world church. And I said, I'm not sure that that's right. Somehow the, the church that I find here is, I think, much clearer, much nearer to the the church of Acts 2, uh, church as community, and the church that maybe Vatican II put before us, uh, and that we are together, the church. 
and that like I as a priest, I have a ministry, but you as a, uh, a baptized member of the church, you have your ministry. And it's, it's as much your community, your church, as it is mine. And I found that throughout my time in Malawi and generally in Africa, um, the lay involvement has been wonderful um, and has, I think, has just enhanced the church so much. And I mean, that was 50 years ago, as you mentioned, when, when, when lay involvement was, was so active in what you thought was a third world country, but really they had so much to maybe to teach the Western world. But anyway, you, you, this was your work for your first four or five years. Was it further in, in this particular parish? Did you move on from there? Or? Yeah, actually, I, um, I was three years in that first parish, and then I was moved to the cathedral parish in Mzuzu town itself uh, because I was... Um, the bishop felt I had a good charism with young people. And just to say there, John... Um, one of the things that helped there is that uh, football, uh, Malawians and Africans in general, they love football. Number one sport is football. So I was able to get the youth together, you know, and get, get tournaments going in the parish. And I played myself and there were, um, the white man is called Mzungu in, in Malawi. And um, they were sort of surprised to see this young Mzuzu tugging out and being able to play football very fairly well. Um so I think the bishop saw some of that and he brought me to, to as I say, the cathedral parish. Uh, I, it was a different parish because it was partly urban and partly rural. Um, but uh, again, the lay, of all, lay, lay participation was wonderful. And it was there too that we started setting up the basic Christian communities. Every area of the parish had its own sort of structure that it would have meant met once a week to break the word of God, They'd look at their sort of the needs as a as a, a Christian family, and try to answer those sort of needs. Um, I w I was playing first division football with uh, one of the teams um, in 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 Mzuzu for those years, and a great I would see like sports as as evangelical tool at times. Um, the number of people who came to see me like after a while, saying, "Well, Father, you know my my." My marriage hasn't been blessed, and I would like to have the marriage. And I th one man, I said, I've been with you for three years, and this is the first time you... So obviously he was sort of watching me, he was looking at me, and then he felt, yeah, I can talk to John about this, I can talk to Father John about this. So I found it very... You know, uh, they, they saw you in a different role. You weren't just uh, the, the, the uh, minister of worship up there with his alb and all the rest, but uh, it was a flesh-and-blood man. And it, uh, they were able to relate to that as well. So I, I was, uh, I enjoyed again those, uh, those four years. I suppose one of the things that did strike me there is uh, the political reality started to hit me. Um, Malawi was at that time, it was ruled by Hastings Banda, who was a, well, it would have been at one stage a sort of referred to him as a benign dictator. But uh, he was very much, and the Malawi Congress Party were, uh, they called the shots with regard to the country. And if you didn't uh, uh, follow their dictates, you were in trouble. And they had what they called the Young Pioneers. Uh, somehow, the youth group uh, who were trained to uh, make sure that we tore the line. And um, 
it was there I got in contact with uh, human rights issues, justice issues, and I did start dabbling there, uh, asking myself the question, you know, uh, is this what God wants for his people, that we live in fear, that we live sort of uh, unsure of who we're talking to? Um, and that was to blossom later on. But I, I spent about three years, three years there, and then I was asked to go to the minor seminary. We had a, we had a minor seminary in, in Malawi, uh, young men doing more or less in, in we had them in Ireland in here in Ardan, Islamic Noise, it was analogous to St. Mel's. Um, and I'll be honest and say, initially, I didn't want to go. I, I really enjoyed pastoral work, as I saw it, like being with the people, uh, exploring with the people, worshipping with the people, journeying with the people. I enjoyed that very much, and I felt going into a seminary wouldn't allow me to do that. Uh, but again, uh, I sort of, in the end, I, I, uh, I agreed reluctantly, I'd have to be saying. To, uh, the bishop was very insistent, no, uh, we need young men like you, that you would model some sort of something for these young, um, well, we, we used to refer to them as seminarians, but uh, they were in, basically were in the secondary school, but maybe thinking about that. So I went there in, in uh, October. Um, I always feel my struggle to go there was maybe a preparation for something else, because in December I was uh, appointed, at that time we called it regional superior, I was appointed as leader for our men in Malawi and in, in, in Zambia. That was 79. Um, so we had about 35 Kiltigan priests in Malawi and Zambia. So Malawi and Zambia was one, was, was one um, region. So I was appointed as um, a regional superior, which meant I had to leave uh, the minor seminary. So I, I said to somebody, I had a glorious period of three months in the minor seminary. Um, I got to like it, actually, to be honest. I sort of felt at the end, yeah, I could I could spend a bit of time here. Um, but anyway, it was, uh, but I think the Lord prepared me for, because I was quite young. I went in as regional and I was wondering how I, how this, because it was very much more leadership with regard to our own priests, leadership with regard to the, the care of the priest, um, uh, walking with him and trying to provide occasions where maybe sp spiritual, especially, that I might be able to help him. We used to have a saying, they used to call the regional superior, the holy man. And uh, I used to laugh and I said, my God, I'm only a few years ordained and I don't know whether you could give me that title yet. But anyway, I accepted it and I moved from the north of Malawi to the centre to Lilongwe, where our um, regional house was. And then I, I started my ministry uh, to our priests. Some of it would have been just administration, uh, receiving people who were coming in, making sure work permits were up to date and all of that. And the, the main part of it for me would have been the care of our priests, trying to accompany them, because the, the life was not, it's not always easy as a missionary priest. And um, so that maybe there as leader, I would be able to help them along the, the journey. And the fact I had to go up to Lusaka, as far as Lusaka is quite a journey, uh, meant I was on the road quite a bit as well. But uh, it was it was the ministry of leadership, uh, a shepherding role uh, 
the Ministry of Leadership in our society. And you would have been re- relatively young at that particular stage, maybe just in your 40s, early 40s. Would that have been right, Father? Uh, a lot younger, John, actually. I, I, I think I was one of the youngest. Actually, I was 32 when I was appointed uh, when I was appointed uh, uh, regional, so um, yeah, I was I was very young, um, and you know that had its own uh, its its own challenge, I suppose. I, like some of the men who were, let's say, under me, <clears throat> were men who were my professors, or men who were my spiritual directors, and I was sort of saying, "Gee, how am I going to? What am I going to be able to say to these men?" But uh, as time went on, like I, 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 I was able to do it, you know, and I, I think for for eight years, I, I, I certainly I tried as much as possible to to care for our own men and to to make sure that they had what they needed to live well and to be good ministers of the gospel. Let's go back a second now, Father. Just just something going through my mind here. Um, what percentage of um, uh, people were in Malawi were Catholics or even Christian? Well, uh, Catholics at that time would have been about 20%. Okay. Uh, Christian would have been about 40-something because the predominant uh, group in uh, Malawi that were Presbyterians. So in actual fact, there were a lot of uh, Northern Ireland ministers who came out in the, in the early days. So they were there actually before us. Uh, so they would have been up to like if we were saying 20%, they would have been certainly up to 30% and maybe beyond that. Uh, then you had at that time, the, the, the Muslim population was quite small. Now, I, I think it has grown over the years. Um, then you would have had African traditional religions, um, the Anglican communion community, and the Methodists would be there. So to answer the question, roughly, I'd say around 20%, maybe a bit below that, 18 to 20% would have been Catholics, roughly about 50% Christian. So it would have been a, a different place than Ireland for Catholics to live, whereas in Ireland at that particular time, it would have been predominantly Catholic. Uh, out, out in Malawi, you were, you were a minority of the population if you're a Catholic. Yeah, absolutely, John. And, um, you know, I found uh, there was a sort of a, a freedom about that uh, for me. Uh, because, you know, I, th- I think where you have sort of a majority, you, you can get sort of majority opinions having to be heard. And, and, and that's important. But uh, I think we can get stuck in mindsets. And like ecumenism would have been one of the things that... Um, I sort of tried to work on, and uh, I became much more aware too that like every tradition has its own wisdom. Uh, it's not just a Catholic tradition that's you know the the the, the owner of all the wisdom. And like when you meet other groups, um, whether they were like we we the Presbyterian Church quite nearby, and they were much bigger than us. But I got to know the the the, the pastor there quite well, and we worked together certainly on on. Um, you know, Church Unity Week, and uh, if there were sort of development projects like for uh, dispensaries, we tried to work together as well. Now, the success or otherwise of that, but somehow it, 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 I don't know, it brought a greater variety, and I think it helped people as well in their choice 
that they, that they ha- had to, like sometimes in Malawi, you were getting one household, uh, three people in different churches. And there weren't all Catholics. Like, uh, he, might, he might be of African traditional religion. So it, 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 with, with catechumens, then you'd be sort of say, well, no, why do you want to be a Catholic? And they had to sort of for themselves as well, to sort of, uh, you know, to voice and to hear themselves say, well, this is why I want to be a Catholic. And I think that there was a lot more maturity in that than some of the stuff I saw when I was growing up here. You know, like we, there was a lot of just, we, we, were, we were following because everybody did it. But people didn't, didn't think through their faith. And I still, I, I, I have a feeling that I'm not even too sure are people doing it today. Even like those who are saying, I'm not going to church. Uh, what are the reasons for not going? Or what are the reasons for saying, well, I don't want to be part of this communion? I'm not always sure that people have thought it through. You know, there might be different circumstances. But anyway, that, that, that's, uh, I found it, you know, enriching. To be, to be with people like that. Like when I started the, the, the youth groups and started the football teams in all the different parishes, there was nobody saying this was just for Catholics. This was for the youth. And anybody joined us, whoever they were, and they were welcome. And we made them welcome. No. And I, I, I think that that would have been, um, to, to me, a very positive aspect of living in a minority situation. And um, not to be overburdened by it, but it did also give us, I would say, an energy for evangelization because our, our, our youth were good to go out. It wasn't all done by the priests. It was the youth and it was the lay leaders. They went out, they, 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 like, they shared their faith. Um, I remember just on one occasion, a man coming to me, he was about mid-40s, and he said he wanted to join the catechumenate. And I was sort of saying, oh, true. You know, uh, you're not in some group already. And he said, no. I said, well, what has inspired you? Well, he said, your youth group came out the other day to our village and they helped two of the old people. The Vagogo. The Vagogo would be the old people. And he said they cleaned up their houses, they washed their plates, they took off the dress from the old mama and washed it. And he said, if young people can do that, I want to be part of that. Beautiful. Exactly. You know, and that, 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 that has always remained with me. And that man, I left him, maybe dead, he's more likely dead now because I was a lot younger. But he became a Catholic. And he became a Catholic because of the witness of young people. Becoming a channel again, as we said earlier. Exactly. Okay, 1979, you, you took on this job as leader, I think. And then that was there for seven or eight years. What happened after that, Father? Um, yeah, I was... I was uh, I was re-elected anyway uh, as regional, which would have meant uh, I did six years, and then what? And then I was I was uh, Bishop Jobidon, the man I spoke about at the beginning. Uh, he wasn't well, and there were rumours about you know whether he was going to resign or everything. I was called to Rome, um, and uh, I'd have to say. Uh, I was utterly amazed at why, why me, and I started talking, thinking, you know, have I made mistakes or whatever. Mm. But anyone, when I got to Rome, they, they they spoke, they wanted to put me in as, they call it, an apostolic administrator uh, of the Diocese of Mzuzu, Bishop Dobbin, and was resigning on health grounds, and they were putting me in basically as an acting bishop, but without 
without, let's say, the full powers of bishop. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'd have to say, John, I was, I knew it, and I was, I, I was terrified of it. I was terrified of it because I, I knew the the, the situation, and uh, the local indigenous clergy did not want an, another young white man yeah. uh, to be leading them. They wanted one of their own. And I, I, I really felt, I, I said to myself, I found it difficult enough and I had to pray about it. Um, I, and obviously in the end, I accepted to go there. But I was very much aware that this would not be an easy part of my journey. And it wasn't. So tell us what happened, your your experience of that, Father, working in this position. Well, when I, when I went up there, Richard, initially, uh, like some of the... Some of the, the, the indigenous clergy said to me, we don't want you. Uh, and uh, I sort of said, well, look, this is, yeah, we have to take that. Somehow God is in all of this. So I ask you to work with me and um, see what we can do together. So uh, gradually, like, uh, as I, I would be fairly good for delegation and for teamwork uh, so with the council there, we started looking at the diocese, and uh, um, I think as as a, as a sort of a focus and a direction came um, among the clergy. Certainly, there was more acceptance of of me, uh, but uh, that desire for one of their own was always there. I said I enjoyed, you know, I, I I've always enjoyed people. I I. I I enjoyed sort of, I administered all the sacraments except ordination. So I was the one to do confirmation and all of that. Um, and they were, they were, they were great occasions. Uh, the people of God are, are full of uh, blessings and full of joy and full of welcome as well. Uh, so we were doing a lot in the diocese, trying to continue to work with Bishop Javidon uh, in leadership training, in development work. And information in you know in general, uh, apart from you know the the the, the care of, uh, we did a lot of sort of on worship um, uh, with the people there, and I suppose it was there too as well when I became very conscious of the political reality. Um, I think the the polit- like I was leader now of this of this diocese, and. Um, the, the political leaders around, they really didn't know how to handle me um, because I was young and they would have, uh, like, generally they tried to use the thing of power and that I would submit to that. And I made it very clear, you know, that I will work together with them, but uh, I was leader of this community and I had a responsibility to that as well. And within that, yes, we, we, we worked together for you know, for a better Malawi, for a, a more just Malawi. Um, and I, at one time, the, the, just as an example of the president came to uh, Mzuzu, and of course I was, I was given a time to meet him uh, with some of the Catholic members and uh, the regional minister who was the big political man, he came over to me and he said, uh, you know, he said, uh, we don't want any political issues when you meet the president. 
um, you know, it's a great privilege for you to meet the pre- president. So uh, make sure that what you say is according to the party lines and according to uh, what we want to hear. So I, I sort of said to him, I said, uh, I, I remember saying to him, I wouldn't tell you what to say. Um, so I would ask you as well to respect that I am a leader here as well and that I will say what I think is appropriate. So I went to meet, we went to meet the president, you know, and at that time there was flooding in, in, in the north of uh, our diocese. And I, I brought that to him, you know, and uh, I, I, was, I was respectful, but I was also respectful of the community that I was representing and that they were, they were going through difficult times. So that political reality, and um, one, time, one time one of our church leaders was taken in uh, into prison, and uh, the charge against him was that he sneered at the president. Now, I went down to try and uh, get him released and wouldn't. And he spent three years in prison because they said he sneered. And this was a man in his mid-60s. It broke him. That, that, that three years broke him. So there was that whole area of justice, human rights, judiciary, was certainly um, coming more to the fore for me. And um, I felt, too, that I was in a forum now at the Bishop's Conference that I could do something about that, that I could speak about that and maybe, you know, maybe influence policies in the church with regard to witnessing to justice and human rights. Certainly a challenge for you there, Father John. Um, how did you, how, what sort of reaction did you get amongst the, the Bishop's Conference to your thoughts? Um, I would say initially the thought I was, uh, I was too strong. Actually, one of them said to me once, as he said, you know, if you want anything to happen here, you're, you're, you're going to have to, uh, you know, tone down. And I did that actually. Um, but like some, there was one of the bishops before who, uh, who had made a stand and the Malawi Congress party treated him very roughly. So there was sort of, uh, there was a certain history there, but the history of that time was a history of complying with what the party wanted and the church would be a sort of a silent, a silent voice. So, uh, you know, it, it was, it was divided. Uh, I was the youngest by far. There was one Italian and all the rest were native Malawians. So like they cherished their freedom and they sort of felt that, uh, and maybe we shouldn't be upsetting the whole uh, issue at this stage. So uh, in the conference, I would say there was, this, there was certainly a reluctance, uh, a certain amount of feeling that uh, I was too strong initially. I did temper that, I must say. But uh, I think, too, that um, you know, the spirit was working. The spirit was working there. Uh, like I worked, I was in charge of religious in Malawi and most male and female religious have brought up very challenging documents with regard to the church in Malawi and uh, the state of the country. So I was sort of listening to that and I was able to bring some of that to the conference. So I think to, uh, to John to start to say it wasn't just about me. I think the spirit and, uh, you know, eventually the 1992 letter to me was... Yes, I had a I'd role to play, but the primary role was the spirit. It was the spirit that gave us that 
I suppose, unity to speak with one voice, because up to that, I, I think we found it difficult enough to speak with one voice. But obviously the Holy Spirit knows what channels to use, and here we go again, uh, you have been used uh, the way the Holy Spirit wanted to use you. So what happened then, Father? I mean, obviously you worked through this period of time as being apostolic administrator of that particular diocese. What happened then? Well, I, I think, John, just to bring that time um, in uh, around uh, the beginning of 1992, um, I was part of a delegation that went to see the Minister of Education about Catholic schools and all of that. And that was a, it was a very unsatisfactory meeting because it really felt, at the end of it, we felt that this was, what they were saying was, pay up and shut up. You have no voice, but we will accept your money. And we weren't prepared just to accept that at that time in Malawi. So the, the the conference of we uh, we had two meetings every year of bishop conference and the conference of January, uh, a report was given, and the chairman to the conference said, "I think we need to write a letter on these issues. I think we should write a pastoral letter to the Catholic community of Malawi on these issues and on other justice issues." Which, to be honest, John, turned away it blew my mind. Uh, I never thought we were even near there. So they asked me if I would be chairperson for that, for the drawing up of that. And we selected, there were all men at that stage and all, about six people to help me um, draw up that, the, the, the letter. Uh, and that was in January. So I met them, like, uh, as time was of the essence. So I called this group together and... Uh, they were both white and indigenous, and uh, they were really enthused by by the bishop's decision. They were really enthused and said, "Thank God, something is happening here." So, within about two weeks, we had the whole letter ready. Uh, we we had it completed, and we, we titled it "Living Our Faith." And the basic issue that we were looking at was, what does it mean to say, "I believe"? I believe in Jesus. I believe in the kingdom. I believe in justice. I believe in love. What does it mean in this political, social political reality? So we looked at human rights. We looked at uh, the judiciary, the freedom of the judiciary, press, and all of those sort of things. And uh, after about two weeks, I, there was a special conference of the bishops. Uh, I brought it up. I brought a completed copy up. And... Um, we, we spent the night, the, the Archbishop Giona, who was in Blantyre, said, let's spend the night at this, and we'll come back the next morning and we'll look at it. Um, so the next morning, the first thing he said was, this is a wonderful document. And I, I must say, I was amazed, because uh, when, as you know, maybe a bit about Africa, if the chief speaks, like in the way we all speak, which is sort of said we've got over a major hurdle. So we spent the day actually just going through it, and it was there that the, the Malawian bishops especially to put in some beautiful proverbs. If you know anything about Africa, the wisdom of Africa is very often found in its proverbs. And uh, just one of them, in, in uh, Tumbuga, Mutumozi Susenzadenga, one head doesn't hold up the roof. 
Oh, that's talking about delegation and about uh, you know teamwork and all the rest. So it's calling into question dictatorship and all of that. So at the end of the day, it was finished. We had agreed. So I was, I was asked to look after the printing, which we did, and we got it throughout the country, which was an amazing. I mean, if the spirit wasn't there, it would never. We got it throughout north to south, and on the first Sunday of Lent. 92, it was proclaimed in every Catholic church in Malawi and was you know, accepted in, 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 in different sort of levels. Like People were initially astounded by it because they'd never heard any questioning at all of the political reality. Uh, but then in the church where I was, people started ululating. And one woman said to me, thank you, you have opened our throats. A lovely image when you think of it. So, uh, but of course, the, the party were enraged, really were enraged. And uh, the, the, the following, following day, we, we were called to Blantyre and we were interrogated for the day. And uh, uh, it became very clear that uh, they were certainly isolating me. Um, if you looked at the papers even, those days following, um, it was this young radical Irishman, uh, a known IRA activist, who was who was starting up all of this. Uh, so they isolated me very quickly. I was a bit surprised with that. I did, I really wasn't expecting so quickly. So um, I was under basically the European Union and the British government were very supportive. And they said, look, we better look after you for, because your name, they, they had put a, uh, they wanted to kill me. And um, they had designated a place on my journey back to Mzuzu. So for three or four days, I was I was basically under house protection. I would put it more than house arrest. I was living in the, the French ambassador's residence because he said, we can give you some some protection here but after about four days i said look this is finished i i've i signed that as leader of the community in the north and that's where i need to be so uh, they wanted to put me in the into the boot of the car so that i wouldn't be seen on the way back up and i said i will lie on the back seat but i will not lie on the boot the boot of a car for anybody um so I, I, I went back up then, um, that was about a week afterwards, after the letter was proclaimed. And for the next six weeks, I, I mean, there were all sorts of rumours. I was dead, I was in prison, I was beaten. Uh, you know, I was never really in prison uh, or beaten. But my life was definitely online and on the line. And I, I knew that, I knew I could be. And I had to face it myself, I had to face the possibility of, of my death. Um, and I did. I faced that with some of my own companions there. I, I talked it out as well as you can talk it out at whatever I was. I was about 42 or 3, you know. Your own society now, the, your own religious congregation that you were a member of, what were their thoughts on all of this time? Uh, I, I would say for those in Malawi as such, uh, they wondered. I think they wondered whether it was too strong or... Um, but. Overall, our men, and we had a man, man called their father, Padre Gomolia, a Mayo man, and, and Pat had made 
huge efforts in the areas of, of justice. And he had taken a lot of, um, you know, personal initiatives that caused him, you know, that uh, the party would not have been happy with him. So overall in Malawi and Zambia, we were very committed to, to, to that uh, agenda of justice issues and trying to bring justice about for the people, but at different levels. Uh, some people would have you know, been very strong about it. Others would have been less strong about it. I think at the level of, of the society in Ireland, they were very, very affirming, very supportive throughout it all. And even like when my life was uh, under threat, I had to keep contact with my family very well and uh, keep contact with me. So I would say overall, John, that society would have been very supportive because in the chapters that we have had, um, you know, over those years, uh, the issues around justice and peace were very predominant. And we were sort of saying, we as missionaries, we have a contribution to make in this in this area. And uh, they would have supported anybody. And so we, even up to the day, we have a man, Kevin O'Hara in Nigeria, who would be very very much involved in justice issues of Gabriel Dolan in Kenya. Uh, so we've had a sort of a long tradition of involvement in justice issues, uh, human rights issues in our society. And I, would, I found them very supportive. So it came to the time when they got a little bit more serious and you had to make a decision maybe to leave the country. Was that it? <laughs> as, as, as the man said, John, it got a lot more serious. <laughs> Uh, I was at actually, there were rumours around, but I actually, in fact, I thought, initially I thought I was going to be expelled. But as the weeks went on, I thought it was, um, ah, that, that was lessening. So Holy Week, I, I decided to visit as many of the parishes. And I was at a place called Mzimba on Good Friday. Uh, and we just had started uh, the, the ceremonies for Good Friday. And I heard this car moving in beside the church, and I was called out. Um, there were two from Emigration Malawi and two CID. And they said they had been informed that they were to find me with a prohibited person's letter. Um, and I, it's funny, I was very calm at that stage. Um, and I said, what are the reasons for this? And they said, we're not here to give reasons. We have been sent and this is the letter. Uh, I said, where does it come from? And they said, uh, this comes from the top, which meant it would have been the president and some of his cronies. So I, for a moment I did, I will I sign it? And then anyway, maybe the spirit acted again. I said, I signed it. And I always remember it was, uh, it was 10 past three. And one of the CID looked at his watch and he said, you're to be out of Malawi by 10 past three tomorrow. Uh, and somehow that really hit me. When, when he said that, it, uh, the reality of it you know, really hit me. That, uh, so I, 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 Malawi is a respectful country, so I saw them to the car. I went back and I finished the ceremonies for that day. And then some of the religious were outside waiting for me because they'd seen the car. And I told them, I said, I've been expelled. And um, two of the sisters started crying. And then, it, I don't know, that sort of, that, I suppose, the tears sort of touched something in me. 
Um, and I started crying. Um, but I knew it was 24 hours, so I had to get back to and, uh which was about an hour and a half. I know it was two hours and a half. So I got back there, and some of the priests had heard about it, and a lot of tears, a lot of prayer, but uh, there was no way, like, I, I tried to get in contact with some of our, you know, our leadership, and sort of saying, well, John, it was, I think it was a Friday evening, Saturday morning, there was nothing really that they could do. They weren't going to change anyway, so, so I remember going into my room and uh, looking at what did I want from here, and I tell you at the end, John, when you're put to that sort of situation, it gives you a realism that uh, we carry too much with us. I left Malawi with one bag. There were things like pictures, maybe my Bible, and things like that that were important. But uh, I think, you know, even still, I think we get ourselves caught up with materialism and things. But when it comes to the final reality, uh, we can travel with very little. So the following morning, it was, it was Holy Saturday, but we said Mass in, in, in a little chapel in Zuzu, and I started my journey down to, uh, to Lilongwe, which was about, about a four-hour journey. Um, halfway there, the, the, the British government has set up, had sent up, um, I would say there were sort of protection for me, and uh, they pulled me in inside the road and said, no, we will not be happy until you are out of Malawi. So we are providing, and we're armed, we are providing protection for you until you get out of Malawi. Um, uh, it was enormously painful, and uh, um, I, I suppose it was traumatic, and I didn't know how, how traumatic it was. I'd spent 21 years in Malawi, and I loved it. I loved the country, and I loved the people. And here you were, given 24 hours to get out. Uh, and this was it, like you were, you were, you were on the, that final journey out of there. So you know, um, I, I, I went, I went down to the long way, and I met some people there that I knew, and some of the bishops had come up to bid farewell to me. At one stage, the bishops had said, you know, if one is uh, treated badly, we're all treated. Um, I'm not sure that that uh, worked out in the end, but at least they were there to say goodbye to me. And then I went by road. Um, to Zambia, I knew they were waiting at the airport, and somehow it was like a little victory for me. I said, "Well, I'm not going to give them the opportunity to stamp my passport as a prohibited person." So I came to uh, came to the border at a place called Mchinji, and two of the men there knew me, and they said, "Ah, oh, what are you doing here? You should be at the cathedral for Holy Saturday." So I just sort of said, "Look, I'm just going across to see the bishop for a while." They hadn't heard anything about it. Emigration uh, informed the airport, um, not the, the the road sort of uh, exit. So I went to Mzuzu, I went to Chipata, uh, and a few days I rested there for a few days. I was very confused and to be very, very, very pained. I'd, I'd, I'd be very. I spoke to my mother at that time, and she was, I mean, she was shocked by the whole thing. And you know, what have you done wrong? Uh, sorry to say, nothing wrong, mother, but uh, sometimes calls for this. I, I was saying that, and I wasn't truly believing it for myself. But I went up to uh, Lusaka then, and there was a, a man called Brendan Rogers. He was first consul to the Irish Embassy, and 
Brendan was wonderful. He he, he looked after me very well and. Uh, yeah, yeah, he provided hospitality for those few days that I was there, and uh, uh, I felt very secure there. But I suppose what really came to to me was the sort of the trauma build. You know, I, as one of our former students in Kiltegan said to me, Roach, I never thought that this would happen to you. I suppose I never thought it would happen to me myself either. But uh, again, the spirit works in different ways. And Father, can I just ask you there, at maybe at this point, how how did the church continue in Malawi after you left? Because that letter was still out there. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, it's certainly my expulsion. Um, it 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 did affect, but uh, like <clears throat> I would say, from like it's always difficult from what I heard <clears throat> that it did continue. That the, like somehow there's. Uh, they all say the pen is more powerful than the bullet. Well, at least it's voiced, and at least that that word is spoken. It it germinates, and the church did, I would say, like in in quiet ways to try to try and continue it. But it did learn, lead to a whole movement for looking for democracy for Malawi, and that that movement was culminated in two years afterwards where President Banda and the Malawi Congress Party felt that they could no longer refuse and that a referendum for multi-party democracy or the continuation of one-party rule. And it was over 85% in favour of multi-party democracy. So that letter is regarded as being the catalyst. It's still regarded as being the catalyst in Malawi of a new time and of a new thinking. And... uh, so I think the church, I mean, the, the church tried, but it was, uh, I, I would say, other agents became maybe more important. There was a, a public affairs committee which was set up, and that was the different churches and different NGOs. And in actual fact, I think they were the ones who took it on. If I was sort of saying for anything, John, in the area of communi- uh, ecumenism, our letter did more than all the talking because all the churches said, yes, this is true. Thank God somebody has said it. So the churches, the Presbyterians, the Anglicans, the, the Methodists, they all came behind us and became behind that letter. And they were they were the ones in actual fact, I think, who took it more aggressively forward than the Catholic Church. And so you had to leave that behind, and you're now in Zambia, did you say, Father? What, what happened then? Uh, well, no, all, all I did, I, I spent a few days in Zambia. That was basically a preparation to go home. Okay. Uh, um, I, I, I sort of, I felt very much, especially for my family, that uh, they were paining, and I just sort of, I, I felt you know, it's more important now to get home. So yeah. I spent about three or four days maybe. And I, I prepared to go home. Um, I knew that there was sort of some media attention and interest in in the case. Uh, so again, Brendan Rogers helped me there because he he noticed that I was very maybe traumatized in a way by the whole experience. And he said, "Write it out, uh, write out whatever you want to say." Uh, so when I arrived in Dublin, indeed, the Archbishop was there. The Archbishop uh, Cardinal Connell was there. And um, my own society were there, and the press were there. 
I always remember the first uh, the first point I said. I said, this is like a death for me. Now, I didn't realize maybe how true that was because in, in a way, in the next two years, I had to sort of go through, in a way, a mourning period. Um, I left something I loved, and uh, I, I would say it as a sort of a mourning period for me. Um, so I was... Um, my own society were there. They were very supportive and very, um, yeah, very encouraging. So I, I just we, we had the press conference. Then we went. I went to my brother's house, and uh, after a few days, I had to go to Rome. Uh, I had to sort of report to Rome, and uh, my own society gave me the vicar general, uh, Father Galuli, at that time to accompany me, which I was very pleased with because. Uh, you feel very vulnerable at that time, and I felt very vulnerable. Um, so it was great to have a brother uh, beside me and uh, uh, to be able to share uh, share with that. Uh, so I spent a few days in Rome, you know, reporting to the different offices there. Um, I found it difficult enough to gauge whether they were in favour of it or not. I felt a conversation had changed. Mm-hmm. That. Uh, that it wasn't as supportive of maybe as I expected, uh, and yet there were signs that there were. I just found it difficult enough to to gauge um, where that was. So um, I, I spent a few days there, and they were saying we're going to work to get you back. Um, and uh, but I sort of knew that uh, this wasn't going to happen. Certainly wasn't going to happen in the short term. Um, so I, I went, I did a little three months course in London in uh, Totteridge. Uh, and then I had to go back to certain sort of things. And they were sort of saying I was still in charge of the diocese. So I used to call out some of the leaders to Zambia. and We'd have a day or two together. But it was very unsatisfactory. Uh, I'm absolutely convinced that if you have to leave somewhere, you have to be there. You, you have to have... You have to have, uh, you know, feeling for what's happening on the ground, um, and I found that very difficult. Even though I was getting reports and things like that, uh, it was very clear that I, I wasn't on the pulse. I wasn't. Uh, the pulse wasn't, wasn't with me. Um, so I did that for, for two years and two and a half years. I, uh, to me, it was analogous to being in a sort of limbo situation. I found it very difficult to. Um, uh, to settle into anything because, uh, like Rome was saying, you're still in charge. I wasn't there. I was trying to do little bits in Ireland. So limbo was, was for me would have been the the best image. I would have. It was a prolonged period of limbo. And yet, at the same time, you believed within yourself that the whole time, your whole experience, you had been led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, I. I have no doubt about that, John. Uh, like people used to say to me, um, you know, how did this happen? Because even within Malawi, it were, the people sort of knew us as an Episcopal conference and they, they doubted that this would have happened at all. And I kept sort of saying, and some of them would say, oh, well, it's, it's, John. it's John. John has been the, the driving force behind us. And I used to say, it's not John. It's, it's, it's the spirit of God. It's the spirit of freedom. It's the spirit that calls us to, to, uh, to freedom and to joy and to respect for one another. 
And I'm totally convinced about that. I don't think it would have ever happened. If it was just left up to John, that would not have happened. It happened because the Spirit intervened and the Spirit was active at that moment. And like one of the gifts of the Spirit is unity. And uh, if you know anything about Episcopal conferences, you cannot send out an Episcopal letter unless there's unity in the, in the conference. That we were of one voice and that we all signed that document together, to me, is the utter uh, proof that it is of, of the Spirit. And I, I suppose it like eventually it brought me into a whole, you know, whole meditation about, you know, uh, I was too being invited. I was a Good Friday person. So I, I don't know if you ever read, there's a book called Good Friday People by uh, Cassidy, Sheila Cassidy. Uh, it's an old book. She was abducted in South America. I think it was El Salvador on Good Friday. And she writes a Good Friday, a novel, not a novel, a book called Good Friday People. And I would be very conscious of, you know, that, that powerlessness, that vulnerability, um, uh, that sort of been 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 used uh, that day became a real reality, and I, I I sort of felt this was an invitation to uh, to to know the Christ at a different level, uh, uh, crucifixion and you know uh, suffering. I, I I sort of I feel now uh, it's in me, it's part of me. I don't just talk about it; I've lived it. Um, and I've also lived res resurrection because not only am I alive, but I'm a wiser person uh, because of this experience. And some people might look at it and say, "Oh, yeah, it uh, it was a very it was a difficult, very difficult experience." But uh, surely, suffering and crucifixion for Jesus was a very difficult experience. So I, I think I have um, I've experienced what Good Friday means. And I know it's sort of in my flesh that this is what Good Friday means. And um, but thankfully, too, I also know what resurrection means. So when we speak about these things now, it's not just from a book. It's from the heart, from my spirit. So just returning to your story there, uh, you spent a few years in Ireland. And then did you return to Africa again, Father John? Yeah, actually, I returned um they asked me, the society then asked me if I would go to Zambia. Um, there was, a, there was a, one of our had to come home, and there was a parish there that was without uh, a minister, without a priest for the full year. So I said I would go back. I, I, I was very conscious that I had a choice. Um, like some people said, well, you won't go back to Africa. Any Africa has hurt you. So uh, Africa never hurt me. Certain people hurt me. Uh, but my experience of Africa and of its of his beautiful people has been predominantly a very positive and a very grateful. And I'm very times and years I've spent in, in Africa, a wonderful continent and a, a graced people. Um, so I went, I, I said, yeah, I'll go back. So I spent three years in a parish on the outskirts of Lusaka. Uh, anybody who was listening, it was great, off the Great North Road. Uh, it was called Cabanana. And that was my first time back in parish for a number of, a long time, 20 years or something. I, John, I really enjoyed it. It, it renewed me and it brought me back to what the church is really about, what a priest is really about. Um, yeah, we, we, 
I, I felt myself moving more and more into a very good space. And um, it's funny, we've had a lot of vocations to the priesthood uh, from that parish. And some of them would say, well, it was your witness. And I, I'm very conscious that uh, I was, you know, I was I was just uh, filled for being back with these people, journeying, burying them, baptizing them, doing their marriages. There was a, it was just wonderful to be back in that sort of an ordinary people and celebrating our faith and celebrating the reality of Jesus in their lives. So um, I was three years there. Um, I had to come home to get a hip done uh, because I think uh, some people would say trauma hits you in different places. But I think it hit me in my hips uh, even though I was a football, I come home to get that done. And while I was home, they, they asked me when I went to the formation of our priests. And I sort of knew, you know, that maybe I might have a gift in that area. And I agreed to do it. And then they said to go to Nigeria. Now, I, I wasn't ready for Nigeria, to be honest. I spent all my time in Central Africa, and I didn't know much about Nigeria. But anyway, I said I will go. So I spent seven years in Nigeria accompanying uh, our young candidates for the priesthood to our own society. Um, they would have been from different parts of Nigeria. And um, I came to love that program and to love the young men. I mean, they were very generous young men. And uh, like I found vocations in, in Nigeria are still fairly abundant. Uh, now, we did a good selection process. But for seven, seven, seven years, roughly, I accompanied these young men. I was sort of spiritual director. and um, oh, I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed that time. And I got to, I, I didn't enjoy the, the, the climate of Nigeria that much. It's, it, it's too humid. But uh, I enjoyed these people and their vibrancy and their creativity and their uh, never say die sort of attitude. Um, so they were great years, um, and uh, I worked together with uh, one of our priests from Kerry and one of the indigenous uh, priests as well. So uh, I was I was basically seven years there. I came out of that, and we normally would, that's all. Generally, people in formation work only do maybe six or seven years, and you're given a break. So after that, then, um, I took a break for a little bit, and they asked me when I go to our theology house in in Nairobi and uh, I was a bit surprised to be honest with that um, but I sort of felt I'd done my bit but anyway I, I went and I was five years there um, enjoyed it again I mean it's not a privilege to accompany anybody but to accompany young men maybe who are trying to discern is this what they want and what God wants for them is it's a very sacred place and it's a very uh, it's a very I suppose, big responsibility in a way. But I, I really enjoyed that very much. And I did five years, uh, came home, and then they appointed me to England. I did a bit of work in England and promotion. And then in uh, 19, was it 16? They asked me would I go back to the theology house for a few more years. Uh, again, I was surprised because... Uh, I was getting up to 70 at that stage and you sort of say, well, as director of theology, am I not like a, a little old for it? Um, but again, I tried to listen to the to the spirit. 
I, I was always struck by that, uh, the oldest swinger in town, that song. I felt that I was the oldest formator in town, and I certainly was the oldest director in town. Back for three years, and uh, again, I must say, uh, there were good years. And in a way, it sort of felt for me somehow as if it was completion now. That somehow after five years, I didn't feel something that I had completed at all, but I felt that I had completed it now. And uh, in May this year, I handed over to one of our young Nigerian priests, who is the new director of the Theology House in um, in Nairobi. And I am back now. The journey has come in a way full circle. Uh, I'm back in a throne. Um, not sure what I, what lies ahead of me, um, what I want or what the Lord wants, but that will unfold in its own time. For the moment, I'm just happy to be around here to rest and to meet old friends. Father John, just listening to your story growing up there in the 50s and 60s and to your experience in Africa, and now back in Ireland in 2020, talk to us about how lived faith was experienced in younger days in Ireland and your experience of faith now in Ireland and maybe what we can learn from how the people in Africa lived their faith. Well, I, I suppose, John, coming home, anyway, for the, the first thing that really strikes you is the reality of COVID-19. Um, mm. so there's a lot of, I think, a lot of fear and anxiety out there. It's it's it's, uh, it's very strange when you, you know we had it in Kenya when I, before I left. Um, so uh, I, I think that, but it did just strike me. I suppose I think there's two things that strike me that you know faith has been centered in Jesus Christ, and that like that that I'm not. I'm not sure how many people sort of really explore, you know, what it means to be in relationship to Jesus. I think we have, like, church is not firstly about ritual, or it's not firstly about laws. It's firstly about relationship. And at the heart of the gospel is our relationship with Jesus Christ, and our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with one another, our relationship with all of creation. And uh, I think in some of our training and some of our teaching uh, over the years, I think we have sort of centered too much on laws and rituals and that people don't sufficiently see religion as being, you know, something that's life-giving, something that's freeing, and that's something that really enables me to touch into the very divine within myself and to, to the very core of who I am. So I think that that's one thing that we haven't done in Ireland. And like, you know, we, we've had problems over the last number of years, whether that's uh, child abuse and all of that. But uh, I think maybe at times people are rejecting church for the wrong reasons. I don't, I'm not sure whether they have really explored it for themselves and really sat with it and maybe sat with the Bible. Like Pope Francis is, is inviting us to be, you know, to, to walk with the Bible. Uh, do we know the Bible? The, the, in the last 50 years, we've been invited again to explore the Bible, and I think most of our Catholics still don't know the Bible very much at all. So I think that that's one area. I think the other area is, you know, people talk about the lack of priests, but like, is and in the now maybe, are, are we being invited to a new model of church? Like, is the church about priests or is it about community? And is it about communion? And like, you know, I, I'm here in Atlone, 
down and uh, I think there's in the friaries about seven or eight priests I do, they're more than sufficient priests uh, but where are the lay I still think that we, we haven't allowed or provided avenues for where the laity can truly bl- like Pope Francis speaks so beautifully about the primary vocation is the vocation of our baptism we are children of God that's our primary vocation and any other vocation, whether it's to married life or to be a nurse or to be a priest, is adding something onto it. But unless the primary one is really vibrant and alive there, there'll be something I think lacking in the others. I would love to see the laity and responsibility, and I would love to see the leadership of the church in Ireland providing real avenues of co-responsibility, of team ministry, of working together, and of truly being a family of faith. And Fadi, you know, I, I was just thinking there, also during, during what you've just said and, uh, and earlier, has the vocation of a priest changed in any way, do you think, from when you were ordained? Uh, if, if it there's something wrong. Because I, life changes. The church changes. Change is part of, change is part of, of reality is part of, is part of, of uh, part of the journey. I like as, as we've often learned, that the mature person is a person who has changed often, but the mature community is a community that has changed often. So I think priesthood has to change, and I, you know I I, I I think you do see. So I, I think priesthood maybe much be much more about you know enabling, inviting, challenging. Um, you know all of us. And that means a certain, I think we have, the priest has to let go of things um, and to allow uh, the laity, I think, to, uh, you know, to take the rightful role. And, and, and like when we're talking then about dialogue and responsibility, that has to be real. It cannot be just words. And I think at times people feel it is words. So I think the role of the priest, he will always be there as that man of ritual. But it's the ritual not just of the altar, it's the ritual of communion. And it's the ritual of community. And so he's there to to be, uh, you know, another animator among many in the area of of communion and of community. So he, I think it has changed. And I think, the, you know, people talk about the, the, the now of Ireland. I think the, the spirit always uh, in, invites us to growth. And I think the spirit is changed, is saying to we as priests and to the and to the community. Because I think too, very many is like maybe like it's even good to be able to talk to you. Here's a channel now that I that that, that you as you as a lay person and the people involved in Spirit Radio are, are spreading the word. But like there's wonderful people throughout Ireland, the length and breadth of Ireland, who I think they have so many gifts. And maybe for them to ask themselves the question, what gift can I provide for the community? What is the particular gift and the unique gift that only I can provide for this community? And that we as priests provide the attitude, uh, avenues, provide the opportunities for that man or woman to blossom in their own. And that he would be that sort of the bringer together of all the different charisms that are there 
for the good of the kingdom and for the good of God's people. Really, by by yourself, Father John, after just listening to your story there and the various challenges and the various avenues that you were led in your life, that was led by the Holy Spirit, but also supported in the Holy Spirit. And I suppose that's something that we should all always not forget, that we're not doing this, as, as you said earlier on yourself, on your own, Father John. The Holy Spirit's there behind you all the time. Father, yeah, well, I'd be just, John, I'd be very conscious that you're that thing of a man, God with us. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the name that Jesus was given was God with us. Yeah. And he said to us, you're never alone. My spirit will be with you always. And I would be very conscious of that, you know, for all of us. And uh, I think we need to sort of really sit with that and allow it to penetrate and allow it to anoint us with confidence and with hope and with trust. Leading on from what we've just spoken about there, those few points there, how do you see evangelization taking place in the year 2020? Um, I, I think predominantly, I would think maybe of two ways. My, the whole, this whole pandemic has brought to the fore um, like the, the internet uh, and you know how that can be used very positively uh, for evangelization. Like the number of people I'm around, I can say, well, I, I look into the mass there, I have the rosary there. And I think we need to explore that more and more. I think there's avenues there of that, that are waiting to be tapped further. And, you know, well done to Spirit Radio. Uh, I, I think that all of that is one area that evangelization has to has to uh, to happen. I also don't think that you can never get away from the witness I think the witness aspect of it, and that's men and women living in a particular way, making choices uh, in you know uh, for the good of people, and and I, I think we have to be brave enough and honest enough to continue sort of say I am a witness to the risen Lord, I am a witness to the alive Lord. Jesus is alive, and so I don't. I think we have to marry. Like I, I'm just uh, very aware when I go down to see visit people. Um, a lot of them are, are are not young anymore, but they're so happy just to see people. And then people talk about the young people bringing you know food in the pandemic to uh, maybe to people who are housebound. That we would see that as a you know an outreaching of the spirit. It, it may not be the language that we're used to. But we need new language. We need new time. So uh, to me, that they would be the two primary ones. I think we really have to explore more and more the whole of media, the Internet. I did a mass in uh, Nairobi before a Zoom mass. Hmm. Uh, It was my first time to do it. So like I'm being challenged as well, like to to, to learn about these sort of things even in my 70s. Um, But that would be one. But I don't think we can ever sort of. Uh, underplay the power of witness, and I would love—I'd love to see that at all levels of Irish society. Okay, so Father Father John, at this stage, what do you think people expect of a priest? I think, like the number one thing, I think is that people hope to find an honesty within us, mm. um, an honesty in our humanity, and an honesty in our spirituality. And that we're not uh, like uh, uh, afraid to share who we are, 
Um, so I think the best word I would use for it is I really think that people hope that they will see in us a, maybe a brutal honesty that this, this, and that. I think that they hope, I think they would see a sort of a, a person of integration, that somehow I have I've integrated, or at least I'm on that journey of integration, like uh, with, the, with the whole person, uh, that it's not that I am living in compartments, but this is John, this is John the priest and John the man. Uh, I, th- I think that that people hope to see in in me and in all of us as priests sort of a an integration of life. I think to do uh, expect and hope that that there will be a sort of a holiness in us, but that. That, that holiness is is not just about saying prayers or being seen in the chapel, but it's about a holiness of respect, a holiness of compassion, a holiness of of, of mercy, and um, a holiness I think is reflected in a deep listening. I think the people want us to be listeners, and uh, because there's there's a huge amount of healing I know in listening. So um, I think the people, so, that I, so when we're talking about holiness, that I think is what we're, anyway, that we are, I think that we are talking about. Mm-hmm. And I think too that, that the people would hope to find of us um, a willingness to truly share, uh, a willingness to allow others to exercise their talents and their gifts, gifts in the now of Ireland. And to do that joyfully as a celebration, and that it would be men of teamwork, that it would really work as a team. And that's not just been if they have a fellow priest, but uh, you know, all in the parish council and the finance committee or whatever it is, um, I, I think that, uh, that we will be those sort of team people. And I think just finally, I think people hope that we would, we would be people of hope. Especially, I think, in the now. Um, I'd, uh, negativity, I, uh, personally, I don't think it gets us anywhere. And there is a lot of negativity out there, and I can understand where it's coming from. But, like, we believe Jesus is with us, that he's not just with us, but that he's in us, he's among us. And Pope Francis, again, how often has he invited us that we should be disciples of hope? So I think the priest has to be a man of hope. To speak hope, live hope, and to proclaim hope. So they would be the areas I think of today. Father John, at this stage, what keeps you going? I think what keeps me going is my relationship with with with, with Jesus. Um, I I have I have a little place and uh, uh, out here in, in Athlone. Uh, which provides me an opportunity just to be silent with with my God at different times during the day, and you know I I I am in communion, I am listening and He is speaking. So I uh, that I think is is number one that keeps me going. Uh, it's it's that relationship, and I think the second thing is uh, again like coming home. I've just. I think goodness outweighs 
uh, let's say, if you want to put it, what badness in our world. But I, I do think the media too often centre upon, you know, the evils that are happening among us. Somebody said good news is not news. Well, I think it should be news. And I see a lot of good news in, in, in a lot of the people around who are caring for one another and caring for their elderly. So what keeps me going is the goodness I see in other people. And that, that I feel is nourishing the goodness in me. So I think to, to the extent that I can be, I try to be, you know, goodness and try to be kind, um, I am responding to that in others and they are responding it uh, to me. Like the number of times, even since I came home, like people have come with a gift. Uh, oh, you set up a little house, Father John. Here's a little gift for you. I mean, I I would never take that as for granted. It's such a beautiful gesture of, you know, of kindness, of of goodness, and um, I just say uh, thank you. I do think Pope Francis is right that. Uh, Thank you should be one of the words that we use most frequently. I thank God for the goodness in others and for the goodness in me. I think that they are the two things that really keep me going. Beautiful. Father John, what would you say to a young person who might be listening to us, to, to listen to this conversation and is open to following in your footsteps and maybe considering the option of religious life? What would you say to them? Uh, I would say to them, listen to your deepest aspirations first. I say, like, give, give yourself uh, a time and uh, maybe opportunity to listen to, you know, to, to that inner voice. There is an inner voice. It's, it's crowded out, I think, a lot um, in our world today. Um, it can be a very noisy world today. But to try and find opportunities to, to listen to the inner voice, and that's not, I think, I think some young people might feel, that's off the wall sort of stuff, but uh, it's not. I don't think it is. Um, so I think number one, I think they have to be try to say, what do I want, and what does that inner, what what does God want? However, you're sort of, if you're talking about God has been beauty, God has been majesty, God has been, you know, um, or whatever it is, like, but it has to be what you want as well. So I would say that. For me, that's that's number one. Uh, two, I would say to them, my experience of the journey has been a wonderful experience, and I would sort of say, invite them. I think they should be invited. That uh, priesthood, ministry, evangelization, whatever title you want to to put it under, I I still would say to anybody who asks, the wonderful way of living your life and living your life for others. So why not give it a chance? Why, why, why not embrace it? Um, uh, so I, the, I think that would be the, the, the second thing that here that for me it has been that sort of experience. And, and uh, you know, maybe finally, like, uh, there's no harm in, in, in challenging people. Yes, we'll be countercultural, but the gospel is countercultural at times. Like if you said to some people today, well, you know, why not join the religious life or the priesthood? They would say, you know, you're off the wall, like thinking about these things. I, if we are followers of Jesus, I think we have to continue inviting people. And then why not start to say, well, you know, okay, uh, 
Jesus was counterculture. Jesus, Jesus challenged the Jews to, to, to change their thinking. So why can't we not be a, you know, strong enough, maybe, of honest enough to, to put a challenge before people and, and young people? Um, like some people said to me at time, oh, well, this whole thing of sexual, you know, of, of, of scandals in the church. But <laughs> what often strikes me is that, you know, we have a lot of marriages that are breaking down now, unfortunately, in Ireland. And yet, like, young people will certainly ask themselves, you know, you know, do I want to get married? Or you know, if I'm in a, in a relationship, is that what I want? So I, those three things, I think, John, would be for me. Uh, what I would like to say to them, listen to your own deepest desires. Try to you know, to, to discern and to judge where, where, where you're calling. Um, to share with them my own experience and to say it has been a wonderful life and I, um, I'm very grateful that I've I've lived this sort of way. And maybe to challenge them to say, well, yeah, let's be countercultural. Let the church not be afraid to be countercultural and to be brave and prophetic enough to put that challenge before young people. Thanks for that, Father John. Now, after two hours, I'm coming to the last question or two. <laughs> Thank you very much, Steve, for the time. Father John, the many obstacles, I suppose, put in the way of people living out their faith in 2020. Someone of just hanging on in there as best they can. What words of encouragement would you like to give them? I, I suppose, first, John, I think there was times when Jesus hang, hung in. Um, I would go back. I always start to try to go back. Like I often think of Jesus in the garden, whatever in the garden. He was hanging in. Like He wasn't finding it easy. and and uh, But he hung in. And... Um, like when he comes to the sort of the, 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 the final reality, they sort of say, well, not your will, but mine be done. Uh, he comes to a point of freedom. Um, like uh, there's, there's a times of things when we have to let go and even let go of our own agenda. And, and if, if hanging in is where I am at the moment, well, let me hang in and let me hang in well, but let me hang in as well in openness. What is the Spirit saying to me now? What is the Spirit inviting me to? Whether it's sickness or whether it's... I mean, people have lost a job at the moment. Uh, people are, you know, with the, with, the, with the virus, people are struggling. Could the Spirit be inviting us or saying to us something in this as well? So I would sort of say one thing, uh, hang in. I would invite them to keep... Like Peter, as long as he was looking at Jesus in the lake... He was sharing in the divine. Mm. And I'd, I'd invite them, maybe give them a few little uh, scripture passages or whatever. They just try to keep an eye on Jesus, keep keep gazing, and allow themselves to, uh, to gaze on that. And I, I suppose, thirdly, to try and find some sort of, I would put it as a sort of a little community. There's times when we need one another. We need one another just to support each other. We need one another to encourage each other. And I, try, and I, I think that that's, you know, maybe for all of us in these days, the, the, I know social distancing and all of that, but we can visit each, you know, one-to-one is, is a very powerful means. So uh, that's what I would say for the people. I, it's it's not an easy place. And I, uh, but it also is a place, I think, of 
of freedom, of, of new wisdom. And I think in the final analysis, we are called in our lives to, to wisdom and to live love. I think that that's where you know, that, that sick person on the bed can, can, can live love, radiate love. I can sort of allow that to, to permeate and to be, to be truly nestled in me again. I will find hope. Father John, thanks indeed for, for sharing that journey with us, that journey that you started off with your meeting the Lord many years ago back there in Atlone, and continuing that journey with him and listening to his Holy Spirit in all the events of your life that has brought you to where you are at the moment. Thank you so much for that. Is there any piece of music, Father, that you'd like us to play at the end of this interview? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I certainly one of them would be sort of be still and know that I am God. There's some lovely, mm. there's some lovely renderings of 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 that. Um, that certainly be would be one. And some of those, like, uh, the calling ones. Um, I I heard one recently. You know, I've called you by your name. Yeah. You are mine. Yeah, got, and yeah. if we could personalize, I think that might be the main one. Uh, that. That we can, that, and maybe even if you interest, that we could personalize that, that each of us could say, I am calling you John, I am calling you Mary, I am calling you Boniface, whatever it is, mm-hmm. by your name, you are mine. That, I think, would be the number one. Yeah, I, I, I have a lovely piece of that available to play, no doubt. Thank you very much indeed. Father, mm-hmm. before, you leave, before you leave us, before we leave this interview, um, it's it's a pleasure and a privilege for us to have somebody like you and to be, as you said early on in the interview, a channel, a channel of that blessing. So maybe would you just finish off this interview by giving us your priestly blessing, please, for all of those who are listening today, those who are sick and housebound and all of us. Okay, John. Thank you. Thank you for walking with me during this interview. Thank you for listening to the way the Lord has worked in my life and the way that the Lord has witnessed his love and his presence in my life. I thank you too for the way the Lord is with you wherever you are today, whether you are in a hospital, whether you're at home, whether you're housebound, wherever you are. I would like to say to you, the Lord is with you, and the Lord will be with you always. He is beside you in the chair, he is within your heart, and he is all around you. And in that reality, I bless you, and in that reality, I anoint you in the power of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And may the peace and joy of Jesus descend upon you, and be with you always. Amen. Father John Roche, thank you so much for sharing that beautiful journey with us. God bless you. And thank you, John, for the opportunity. A voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
come to you in the silence I will lift you from all your fears You will hear my voice I claim you as my choice Be still and know I am afraid for I am with you I have called you each by name come and follow me and I will bring you
for I am with you. I am with you. It is I who've called you each by name. Each by name. Come and follow me, and I will bring you home. I love you. Sacred Space 